Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands. To action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon title this morning is The Mark of a Christian. The Mark of a Christian, some of you may recognize that as the title of a book by Francis Schaeffer, a remarkable booklet, very easy read, and you can read it literally in about 30, 45 minutes. I thought that would be very appropriate as we think about the beginning of the new year, and it turns out by the providence of God, 1 Samuel 30, where we are in our preaching, is directly on point to that. We have been, over a period of time now, been working our way through 1 Samuel. We're now in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, and as we're in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, we're just a short chapter from the very end, 31, the death of Saul. 1 Samuel has been juxtaposing all through the book the visible church and the invisible church. King Saul is the visible church. Outwardly, he seems to be quite religious when it's convenient. But what we discover is that his religiosity is only as long as it works for him. But when the will of God and the providence of God crosses his path, he does not bow low and worship. And compared to that is King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who has a new heart by the work of the Holy Spirit and now earnestly desires to join God in God's most right God-centeredness in the pursuit of God's glory, whatever that might entail. Both men do reflect sin, but we see again and again that David reflects this repentance unto life and the earnest desire that God do a great work in him. We've been talking as well in this process about the reality that Matthew Mead in the 1670s wrote a book called The Almost Christian Discovered in which he uses King Saul primarily as a great example of people who can seem very religious and yet not be converted. I've mentioned to you before that in the same decade, the 1670s, Richard Baxter wrote A Call to the Unconverted. Joseph Elaine wrote Alarm to the Unconverted. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, all in the same decade, all with the same purpose, that we might examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And if we determine by Holy Writ and the assurance of the Holy Spirit that we are in the faith, to bow low and worship. To praise the Almighty that as he passed over many, many households on his way to our house, that no good thing dwells in us that caught his eye. But we are indeed, as John Bunyan says, those who are in Christ Jesus, monuments and mirrors of his grace. We'll begin this morning by looking at 1 Corinthians 13. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? I do warn you in advance, this passage is so familiar 
it would be very easy to receive no benefit from it whatsoever. Let us plead with God that we would have ears to hear. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are any gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Will you pray with me, please? God, we do praise you and thank you for this opportunity now to receive this, your living and active, eternal word. And Lord, we are mindful of the many, many times that we have heard it in our presence and did not receive it. God, on this first Lord's Day of this new year, as we heard this morning that your mercies are new every morning, Great is your faithfulness. We ask that you would grant us ears to hear. That we would treasure this opportunity. That we would see from the past year and even the past week our desperate condition. And to understand the balm of Gilead that is Christ who is the living word. The Word made flesh. We pray, God, that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned to you that Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian, where you understand that what we just read, 1 Corinthians 13, is in fact the mark of a Christian. You can go back and read 1 Corinthians 13 and simply replace the word Christian for the word love. 1 Corinthians 13 describes Christians. 
You can do no damage to theology or to the Word of God by replacing the word love in 1 Corinthians 13 with the word Christian. One filled with the Holy Spirit. One seeking the glory of God. One oriented not by the things of this world. Francis Schaeffer, in his introduction to his book, wrote this, Christians have not always presented a pretty picture to the world. Too often they have failed to show the beauty of love, the beauty of Christ, the holiness of God. And the world has turned away. Most Christians continue to stand with arms folded, presenting to men and women a tarnished image of God, a shattered body of Christ. How should we show the world that we are Christians? Through the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols intended to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks or emblems in their lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, and even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign, a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. At the close of his ministry, Jesus made clear what was to be the distinguishing mark of the Christian until his return. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice that what he says here is not a statement or a fact. It is a command which includes a condition. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And if this is involved, if you obey, you will wear the badge that Christ gave. But since this is a commandment, it can be violated. The point? While it is possible to be a Christian without showing the mark, if we expect non-Christians to know that we are Christians, we must show the mark. Well, he does say here it's possible to be a Christian without showing the mark. Let me be clear, he doesn't mean without ever showing the mark. He means from time to time. I remind you that Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, was once asked, what's the difference between a southerner and a northerner? And she said, well, that's easy. Manners. And then the person interviewing her was opposed to that, quite offended, and said, what do you mean by that? Can't Southerners be rude? And she said, of course Southerners can be rude, but not every day. Christians can indeed fall dreadfully, and they can induce sin even daily. And yet the mark of a Christian is love. The mark of a Christian is the steadfast confidence in God and the seeking of God, and the glory of God, and the supernatural power of God by which they overcome their former life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that when he was a child, we could say when we were unconverted, we thought like the world, we reasoned like the world. But when we were converted, we put away worldly things. How remarkable it is. And how rare it is, how right Francis Schaeffer is. He's rarely Wrong. If you haven't read him, I encourage you to read anything by Francis Schaeffer. The reality is that 1 Corinthians 13 is about the heart. The gospel is head, heart, hands. There are things you must understand. There are truths you must comprehend and embrace. And it is also heart, 
You not only comprehend and embrace those things, you love those things. You can comprehend and embrace speed limits without loving them. But when one is born again, he has a new heart, and the Spirit comes and writes his law on our hearts. And we say with King David, Oh, how I love thy law, O Lord. Christianity is not a truth or a person you follow in its essence. Please hear that again. There has been a long, long history of misunderstanding that in the United States and in the South. Christianity is not a truth or a person you follow in its essence. It is a conversion. It is a heart made of stone, melted by God himself and in life. It's a new heart, a new person, a new creation. You must be born again. And so we see Paul saying, just like John does in 1 John, that if you call Christ Lord, there will be marks. It will be obvious to you, and it will be obvious to those around you. And so I urge you again, read 1 Corinthians this afternoon and replace the word love with your name. And pray that chapter. The reality is that as we look at chapter 13 of love, we see the exhortation all through the scriptures of loving one another. You recall that we are indeed exhorted by the Apostle Paul at the end of the epistle to the church of Galatia. He says, let us... Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He also tells us to be doing good deeds to everyone we can, but especially to the household of faith. Well, God is so good as he gives us direct instruction like this. He gives us the incarnate Christ, who is the second Adam, that we might see what that would look like in every circumstance. And so the Gospels, from beginning to end, demonstrate 1 Corinthians 13 in the life of an individual. That's what they are. The Gospels are 1 Corinthians 13 in the life of true man, in the life of true woman. And the Bible tells us, because it's consistent from beginning to end, many examples of those who do follow after that, who do have had that experience and do reflect that, rather. So let's turn in our Bibles then to 1 Samuel 30, where we left off to 1 Samuel 30, and look and see yet another example of a warning And a good example, 1 Samuel 30. We're not going to read the entire thing. I'll simply tell you a little bit of background, and then we'll pick up on the latter portion of the chapter. The background is, this is happening during the period of time just prior to, and perhaps even during, the war that takes place between the Philistines and Israel, in which King Saul dies. So that's happening over in one location, but King David, as you recall from the previous chapter, was sent back home by the Philistine kings. So he's back home in Ziklag, or he's returning home to Ziklag. That's his home city at the moment. When he gets there, the city has been entirely burnt to the ground. Everybody's been captured. The city's been completely destroyed. Everybody's been captured and taken off. And so they go into great mourning. They go into great mourning. Let's just look at the first few verses. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, and the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev, the southern portion of Judah, and on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they captured the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire. 
and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What a remarkable passage about what a Christian looks like in overwhelming circumstances. It certainly indicates that he too is greatly grieved, not knowing what the condition of his wives are, and certainly being greatly concerned about all of the other people that have been taken. He is seemingly overwhelmed, and it would be understandable if he was thoroughly overwhelmed. And yet, that verse 6, look at it again. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. What does that mean? It means they had been very happy to be with David, believing he was the anointed of God, and that he was a man after God's own heart, a man of God's choosing. They were glad to be with him, but now the circumstances, the providences of God, were really testing that, and they weren't doing very well under the test. But God himself grants David that spirit of God. And so David, it says, strengthened himself to the Lord. You recognize that phrase. That is the very phrase, word for word, used in Psalm 42 and 43. Why so downcast, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? It doesn't say put your trust in God. It doesn't say hope in God. In the Hebrew, it's this phrase right here. Strengthen yourself to God. Make it happen. Strengthen yourself to God. You do it. You remember who God is. You remember His nature, His attributes. You remember His faithfulness. You remember the precious promises of His Word. You remember the warnings He gave you about the difficulties and the temptations and about your adversary, the devil. You remember those things and strengthen yourself to God. And that's what He does. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Well, he goes and he leads his people to fight. And as he goes to lead his people to to go after them, under the providence of God, you can read this later, we're not going to read the whole chapter this morning, under the providence of God, he goes, and as he's going to try to find these people who have raided the Amalekites, they come across a man who is a dying in the desert, literally an Egyptian. They pick him up, they feed him, they revive him, and he knows all about it because he was a slave in the Amalekite camp. And he tells them exactly what had happened. And he can lead them to where they need to go. By the providence of God, God steps in and beautifully shows him that I will lead you all the way. I will lead you all the way, bringing in this undeniable gift from God, this Egyptian slave. And so he leads them to where they need to go. And then when they get there, they're rejoicing and dancing. Verse 16 When he brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, that is the Amalekites, with the now wives and children of David and his 600 men, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. You recall that prior to this, King David had been making raids in a number of areas, and he had acquired a great deal of spoil. He was very rich. His people were well off. 
But all this had been taken from them. And now the Amalekites had it and they were rejoicing. And we often see this in the world. We see wicked people rejoicing. That is the very purpose of Psalm 73 and Psalm 37. Why do the wicked prosper? Why are things going well for them? And then Asaph answers it himself in Psalm 73. Then I went, goes in in 73, 37 is David. In Asaph's Psalm 73, he says, I I figured out the answer. I went into the house of the Lord and I remembered the end. I remembered the big picture. I'd gotten lost in the moment. I'd gotten lost in the day. I'd gotten lost in my weariness. But then I went into the house of the Lord and I remembered the big picture. And he knew that God was a God of justice and nothing would miss his eye. And so we see that they are indeed rejoicing like the world today, not knowing that God is present. God is mindful of everything that's happening. The passage goes on and says that they actually split up. They went in to make the victory, which they do, but there's 600 men, and the Bible tells us specifically in the passage that 200 of them were simply faint. They're all warriors. 600 men are all soldiers. They're all warriors. 200 of them are faint, and they acknowledge, we don't think we can go on. And David says, fine, stay here, without any sarcasm. Stay here. And the other 400 of us will go. And they go. And God grants them a great victory. This is, again, just like Gideon. God comes to Gideon to say, I want you to destroy the Philistines. And Gideon is not wanting to do it. But then he finally pulls together an army of 32,000. And he's ready to do it. And God says, no, you have way too many men because when you win, and you will, he'll think you did it. And so he says, anybody that wants to go home can go home and 22,000 go home. Now he has 10,000 men. And God says, no, you have too many men because when you win, and you will, you'll think you did it. And so he does the water passage that you're familiar with and comes up with the 300. But nonetheless, the reality is in both cases, God is winnowing it down under his providence so that he might receive all the glory. And of course they go in and the deliverance is great and wonderful. They receive everybody back and all of their possessions unharmed by the providence of God. It is a glorious, glorious victory by the hand of God. How good God is. Look at verse 17. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 men, young men, who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. So they brought it all back. Verse 21. When David came to the 200 men, he's now coming back with the 400 men that helped him, if you will, in this, although God did all the work in it largely. He comes back to the 200 men who were exhausted to follow David. Listen carefully to this. Who had also been left at the brook of Besor. The reason I tell you to listen carefully is because you have American capitalistic ears. You have American capitalistic ears. I'm not denigrating capitalism. By way of government, it's a great thing. It's far to be preferred over anything else we know. It's seemingly from everything we know from the sinfulness of men. William F. Buckley said that if communists controlled the Sahara Desert, there would be no change for about 50 years, and then there would be a shortage of sand. I'm not advocating anything other than capitalism. I'm warning you that you're coming to this passage this morning with capitalistic American ears. But we are to have the ears and the mind of Christ. 
the understanding of the unity of the body of Christ, the generosity that we wells up in each of us as we come to embrace what do you have that you did not receive? And they went out to meet David. The 200 men are delighted. Hey, we're delighted. And to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and greeted them. In the Hebrew it says, he asked them, how are you doing? How are you? How's it? Is, it, is it well with you? Are you peaceful? You mean, have you rested? Everybody okay? And no denigration whatsoever. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Except to every man, his wife and his children, that they may lead them away. Do you see what's taking place? These people who were behind had lost their wives and children as well, but they also had possessions that had been stolen. And these 400 men who are returning now say, well, we'll give them their family back, sure, but not one penny of their possessions. We'll divide that among ourselves. Because after all, we did the work. Failing to grasp that this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. How grievous that is. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil which we recovered. Wicked and worthless men is how God himself describes those who believe you didn't go and fight in this battle. You get none of the booty. You get none of the spoil. And we're doing you a favor, by the way, in returning your family. How remarkably different that is than 1 Corinthians 13. How remarkably unloving that is. And so the Bible calls them wicked and worthless men. Please hear this. What did I begin today? I began today by telling you that 1 Samuel is the juxtaposition of that which is the visible church and that which is the invisible church. It's comparing King David and King Saul over and over and over again. And so often they look alike, but they have eternal destinies that will never meet beyond the judgment. And these men, 400 of them, now although not all 400 of them are the ones grumbling, it's not really clear, but of some of those 400 who go out and they think we're with God and we're with David and God is with us, imagine for just a moment when the war was over, there was some kind of a battle. They killed a lot of people, it says. And then as the camels are riding out of sight and they realize the victory is ours, don't you think all 400 of them Drop to their knees. And David himself led them in a praise to the Almighty. I do. I think that happened. But how quickly some of them who were wicked and worthless forgot that God had done this. And that those who stood behind are our brothers. And they have engaged in, uh, with us shoulder to shoulder on numerous occasions in the past in battle. They knew these men well. And how quickly they divided away from them. 
The Bible calls them wicked and worthless men. The word worthless, you probably have a footnote in your Bible, is the word Belial, we say in English. It's Belial in Hebrew. It is the idea of without value, although it's a very ancient word, and it's very possible that it means without rising. Could mean without resurrection. Very likely. The word Ole is the word resurrection in Hebrew. And this is without Ole in Hebrew. It could mean without resurrection, but it also could mean easily without value. With no value. These are wicked men with no value. The phrase sons of Belial, that's what your footnote will tell you it says about worthless. The the phrase sons of Belial is the lowest epithet you could get. It's the worst curse you could get in the Bible. And that's what the Holy Spirit describes these men who were there knee to knee with everyone else when David led them in prayer, thanking the Almighty for the victory. And there's no reason, by the way, to believe that they were necessarily opposed to that prayer. But now their hearts are laid open and bare. Their hearts The evilness of their heart. Brothers and sisters, hear this. How good our God is to give us day after day, trial after trial, opportunity after opportunity to examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. To see if indeed you now have a new heart. If your earnest desire is to glorify God. If you do understand the complete and utter worthlessness of yourself, of your complete lack of righteousness, of your weakness, of your sin, of the coldness of your heart. As John MacArthur says, and I've said many times recently because we need to hear it, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But if you have salvation in Christ, What an awesome gift that is. How radically different you are from all the rest of the world, the great majority of the world. So we see this difference that is happening here. But not only does he say we will share it with him. Verse 23, Then David said, You must not do so. My brothers, he calls them brothers, the Holy Spirit calls them wicked and worthless men. But David is being kind-hearted to them and gracious. You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand, not that what we did, but what God did. He's not saying what we, the 400, did, but what God did. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward, he makes it a law, a statute. He made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. How remarkable that is. He says, not only in this case, but let's clarify this for decades and generations and centuries to come, that we are all one people and we share together. We share in the victories. We share in the difficulties. We love one another. Our hearts are knit. Together, look in your bulletin. There is in there, hopefully for you, a memory verse there. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I memorized this in college. I urge you to memorize this. 
I urge you to memorize this. It is the antithesis of what we just saw about these wicked and worthless men. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. How awesome is our God who does just like that, not only looking after his own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Matthew Henry says, So soon do men forget their low estate. True gratitude, brothers and sisters, always comes with true humility and true generosity. Listen to that again. True gratitude always comes with true humility and true generosity. And these men were fine until it cost them something. They began to realize, wow, there's a lot in this pile, and I'm going to get my share. And then when they see the other 200, they're like, wait a minute, my share is going to be diluted by at least a third. And the horns come out, and their heart is revealed. God graciously shows us again and again the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Brothers and sisters, when we read this, our tendency is to read this chapter and believe that it happened and pretty much forget about it. In historical theology. Rarely do we read this chapter and recognize that is 1 Corinthians 13. And it is one of the many opportunities in Scripture to examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. What is your perspective about the greater body of Christ and the strengths and the gifts that they provide or the weaknesses they demonstrate? As you think often, as you should, about your own weaknesses as well as strengths and gifts granted by the Holy Spirit, Turn back to 1 Corinthians 13, if you will, please. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 13, because I want to show you something that's very critical. 1 Corinthians 13, notice that it's preceded, obviously, by 12, and followed by 14. Chapter 12 is about undervaluing what you can do for the body of Christ. And chapter 14 is about overvaluing what you bring to the body of Christ. That's the brief summation of chapter 12 and chapter 14 on either side of chapter 13, the chapter of love, of what is a Christian, of what does it mean to be the body of Christ and loving one another and considering others as more important than ourselves from the heart, not out of duty, but because we love them. Chapter 12, failing to value what you bring to the body of Christ. Failing to value what others bring to the body of Christ or whatever it might be, whenever it might be. In chapter 14, warning against boasting and pride over what you do bring to the body of Christ. I urge you this afternoon and this week to read chapter 12 and to read chapter 14. There is always, always the opportunity to grow in the knowledge and love of Christ. David is a man after God's own heart. 1 Corinthians 12 is about Godward humility. There's the divisiveness of undervaluing the strengths and gifts and contributions of those other than yourself and unlike yourself. 
the divisiveness of undervaluing the strengths and gifts and contributions of those other than yourself, unlike yourself. These 200 men had served faithfully on many other occasions. And on this particular occasion, they were weary and fatigued and made the determination that they weren't able to make it. And then the other men quickly vaulted up in pride. 1 Corinthians 14 is a warning against self-seeking in the utilization of your gifts and your strengths and resources. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. The glory of God's kingdom and whatever you have to contribute, whatever it is that you can bring, the glory of God's kingdom is what we are to desire. Still in that chapter 14, verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in all orderly manner. And so we treasure all that God provides in the body of Christ and we drink it in and delight in it. What specifically is needed? Well, first memorize Philippians 2, 3, and 4 and meditate on it. Meditating is preaching to yourself. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Brothers and sisters, the primary component of goodness is initiative. The primary component of goodness is initiative. Even wicked people will respond when asked for a favor. We are to view, we are to believe, we are to think, we are to know, we are to consider, we are to act as others are more important than ourselves in the manner that Christ does. It is the same that we see evidenced in the early church and so many recoil when they see it in Acts chapter 4. Verse 32, In the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. Abundant grace was upon them all. We do not need to worry about what we give away because God has more. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. What would the practicality of this look like in 2018? Well, let me suggest unequivocally it might begin with prayer and fasting. It might begin by drawing near to God and pleading with God to open our eyes, open our eyes both to shortcomings and failures in the past and fit objects of liberality and charity, as Jonathan Edwards says, that God might open our eyes to those for whom we might be able to love even more strongly. It would involve an alertness, seeking out the welfare of others. It would involve an alertness, a study of others, getting to know the needs of others, and having a careful ear. And that comes 
as we pray without ceasing, as we walk in the Spirit. It would also include mentoring, instructing, training others, loving others, developing others, guiding others, counseling others, spending time with the body of Christ, investing yourself in that time. Years ago, a book was written called The Hurried Child, and it simply said this, the most profound thing from beginning to end in that book was this, quality time always takes place in the context of quantity time. Quality time always takes place in the context of quantity time. It would involve genuinely acting and responding to every other believer as father, as brother, as son, as mother, as sister, as daughter. Notice how that's even different from the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment requires us, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God has given you. The fifth commandment requires us that every person we encounter, we immediately recognize this is a superior, a peer, or a subordinate. And we treat them accordingly, and they treat us accordingly. That's the essence of the fifth commandment. Every person we encounter, we immediately recognize as a superior, a peer, or a subordinate. And we treat them accordingly, and they treat us accordingly. But this great commandment of love goes even beyond that in, the, in a fuller sense. It probably is just filling it out, if you will, that we are to love one another as Christ loves us, that every person we encounter in the body of Christ now, I'm speaking of, as father, as brother, as son, as mother, as sister, as daughter. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not act as a Christian, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not love as a Christian, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not love as Christ, it profits me nothing. Christians are patient. Christians are kind. Christians are not jealous. Christians do not brag and are not arrogant. Christians do not act unbecomingly. They do not seek their own. They are not provoked. They do not take into account a wrong suffered. Christians, as children of light, do not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoice with the truth. The sons of the Most High God bear all things. They believe all things. They hope all things. They endure all things. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of Christians never fails. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, how much application each of us is surely mindful that we need to make of this today. But I am mindful of how easy it would be for many to walk out of here today with a simple understanding that they heard yet another sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. Lord, surely if we heard this today, we will meditate and think on these things. We will cry out to you in the coming week with prayer and fasting in regard to repentance and in regard to biblical hope that you would call forth this kind of love in us that indeed all men might know that we are your disciples because of our love 
for one another. God, may it be so that we can say in 2018 with the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. God, may it be that we would see a new opportunity before us, that we would earnestly plead with you and not let you go until you do bless us in 2018 with a greater love for you and the body of Christ. And that as this comes to pass, we would recognize this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Pray, God, that you would glorify your name. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand now to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see. Come and see.